0: When I was researching, well, how can we give ourselves greater meaning at work? Because I like this idea of agency, that actually meaning is something I can give to myself. Everything points to one thing. And people, I want them to hear this. It is your ability to pay it forward, but to pay it forward in a meaningful way. So it's thinking about who can I introduce Cindy to? Who can I support at work with giving them access to information they might need in order to understand what's going on, the more you can pay it forward in that way, you're going to feel
1: more connection. This is Inclusion Begins With Me, conversations that matter. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy Pace, Vice President and Global Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer at MetLife. podcast examines the pivotal role people play in creating inclusive workplaces that are built for the future. How does inclusion impact our well-being? Why is it a business imperative? In each episode, we weave together storytelling and research-driven conversations with globally recognized authors, experts, and DEI practitioners. On the show, we tackle steps that each of us can take to advance DEI. This is part two of our interview with Michelle King. In our last episode, Michelle and I discussed why it's a critical moment for her book, How Work Works. She told us that the future isn't coming, it's here. In this episode, she'll tell us how to adapt to this new way of working. I think
0: the hybrid way of working, and this is not popular, but it's facts, and I'm a researcher, so we share facts, has made it a lot harder to connect, right? So, hybrid way of working is culture eroding because it makes it harder to connect. You have to work so much harder in a virtual setting to form a meaningful connection, to check in with someone, to understand their context, to read their nonverbal cues, to pick up what's going on with somebody, to really have their undivided attention. Mm -hmm. And that means we've got to be much more mindful about where we're spending our time, which means you need to spend that time mapping your network, understanding what relationships you're investing in, have you actually paid it forward, who are you supporting, and how are you doing this? So I think, you know, I did a commissioned a research study as part of the book examining 2,000 18- to 24-year-olds' experiences of work, and that sample in the UK and the US, I found, this is shocking, the reports, 9 out of 10 18- to 24-year-olds, 9 out of 10, Actively avoid social situations at work because of social anxiety. And if you look at the research behind social anxiety, it's largely fueled by social media. So, millennials spend on average 8 to 10 hours a day on social media, which I still find amazing. I'm like, when do we sleep? But… When do
1: we work? When do we work? When do we study? (laughs) But it's not that
0: social media is intrinsically bad. What studies show is when you go onto social media, you start engaging in the social comparison, right? Even if you're somebody who just scrolls and doesn't ever post or interact. In fact, it's likely to affect you more because one of the reasons you're going on is to see what everybody's doing. The people interact, actually, it's less so. But social comparison is the problem. So, you go on, you come off, and you start comparing. And I think Mm. what we have to recognize is for younger generations, any social interaction feels a lot like social media where the whole world is watching, judging, and making sort of judgments on how they're engaging And it can be difficult for older generations to really accept that, that it feels like cameras are on, everybody's watching, it's just like social media. And so that's why younger generations don't invest in connections as much. And the problem with all of this is we are our workplaces, all the meaning we derive at work is through the connections that we form. So, if you are not investing in those relationships, you're going to feel less connected, less engaged, less satisfied with your work. And that's why the quiet quitting phenomenon, the lazy girl jobs phenomenon, Mm. the snail girl jobs phenomenon is happening because people feel disconnected. So, I actually think while we all love hybrid work, which makes sense because it's an opportunity to disconnect, so it makes sense that we like it, one of the challenges is it gives us an opportunity to disconnect, and so we have to be far more intentional about how we're investing in relationships at work.
1: You know, Michelle, this is really insightful research, and it reminds me of a conversation I had with Dr. Britt Andriata in our first season around the, the science of connection. And she supports your point of view that we need to be very careful about hybrid work. And what it can do to workplaces. I talked about informal and incidental learning, but I'll say it is the informal conversations that you might have while you're going to grab a coffee. I have to tell you, we have some of the best cold brew here. I was not even <laughs> into cold brew, but the cold this brew is, not an, it is yep. not an advertisement. The cold brew and the spa water is amazing. That's when I meet people is when I'm I'm going and I'm talking about people I don't necessarily know. Maybe they listen to the podcast and they want to come up and they want to talk to me or share something that they learned. I probably would not have heard that because they're not going to always write a review. We ask people to write a review. We would love people to, to leave a review. That is their opportunity to connect with me. I'm learning something about them. And I wouldn't have that if I didn't spend some time coming to the office. Now, we all have different work schedules. Some people come in the office every single day. Some people have designated days that they're in the office and then they have flex days. We all have flex days. And then we have people that are what we call fully remote. And so what I'm hearing from you is we need to be very intentional about this, how we are approached to the model. All corporates, all organizations are approach to this model because our projects require collaboration. Our projects require expertise beyond what we know. And if we don't know people, how are we going to get our work done? It's, this is
0: exactly true. And I think what people miss is back in the 1950s, you know, in the assembly line era, you know, you could really go to work, just do a task and leave. That's changed. 82% of us have to collaborate with other people to get our jobs done. 82%. That's likely to continue to increase, right? Out of all the skills you need, social and emotional skills are the number one, right? They account for 75% of career success. Technical skills count for 25%.
1: Social and emotional skills account for 75% of career success. Think about what Michelle just said. Those critical skills include relationship building, decision-making, self-management, and self-awareness, which we'll talk about very soon. So
0: when you're thinking about, you know, where do I invest? It's absolutely in relationships. I think what we have to recognize is the next generation don't see that value. So in a weird turn of events with the pandemic, you've got younger generations coming through just wanting to do the task and go home, and they're looking for meaning outside of work. But next to sleeping hours, work is where you spend the most number of hours over your lifetime. As depressing as that is for people to hear, it is absolutely true. So if you don't find greater meaning and derive meaning from what you're doing and how you're doing it, you're going to struggle. And I think what we have to recognize is all of this is happening in a context where, and I share in the book why, workplaces are becoming more informal. So the trajectory, the forecast, everything points to the fact that hierarchies are collapsing. We've already seen it post-pandemic, right? Only 14% of companies believe the traditional hierarchical structure makes any sense. 14%, one four. So with that in mind, like you can almost bank on the fact that's collapsing. The forecast is mid-level managers are going to disappear, right? Because you're going to have self-managing teams. Your peers are likely to play a critical role in determining your performance outcomes, in determining your pay. Your ability to work with others is actually a core skill. And given that workplaces are diversifying, we'll continue to diversify, whether people like that or not, that is a fact. We have to learn how to bridge our differences with others. And all of that's happening at a time where our tolerance for ambiguity is
1: actually declining. In the new world of work, we have to be more intentional with instruction, feedback, and social interactions. So, social situations
0: are by nature ambiguous. Mm -hmm. When you're engaging with someone, you have to read their body language, you have to read the social cues, the tone of their voice, how they're coming across. And all of that can be hugely taxing for people who find that causes them anxiety, right? Because they've been on social media for too long. So I think what we have to do is recognize this next generation we're dealing with, millennials, Gen Z, are really struggling with the how of work. So how do I navigate interpersonal relationships? How do I manage my feelings at work? How do I manage social relationships at a time when workplaces require the how more than ever, so writing this book was an opportunity to show. Here is what we mean when we mean informal. When we say how you work matters, not just what you do, mm-hmm. because the how enables the what. Because we have to work with others, this is what we mean. It's four things: it's how you manage your informal networks, it's how you share informal information, it's how you manage your development, your point of informal learning. And it's how you manage your informal advancement. And all of that can be done in a way that gives you greater meaning at work. So the book really gives you the skills for managing the how of work. And to your point on unwritten rules, I think by the time we actually share them, it's too late. It's too late. And actually, trial and error is a very high-risk strategy to learn from. So, you know, the more we can actually say to people, this isn't some weird old boys sort of closed network of unwritten rules that no one can decipher. There is actually a science to this. This is what it looks like. And by the way, it's nothing like what it looked like in the past. It's It's not not organisational politics. It's not unwritten rules. This is what it really takes to get ahead. You know, don't just follow what your boss was doing. Have a look at what science tells us about what a meaningful career looks like. And carve your own path. And, you know, there's a researcher I talk about in the book who actually back in the 80s was looking at what the future of work would look like. And he called it, and I love this so much, he called it a path with heart. Oh, wow. And he talked about the importance of following a path with heart where we find greater meaning. And his prediction was exactly this, that we would get to a point where the connections would matter and we would need to derive greater meaning and fulfillment from not just what we do, but
1: importantly, how we do it how we do it, what we do, and why. Given what you're sharing with us around the high levels of social anxiety, new generations coming into the workplace, how do we manage to unearth more purpose, which I think is at the heart, trust, of course, with meaningful connections? What role do you think, purpose plays, you know, how is it prioritized for 18 to 24-year-olds and, you know, those in the millennial generation? What are you seeing? So
0: let's start at the beginning, right? So when we think about career success, the term success, I actually looked this up, the root word, the Latin word for success means exodus. It means to exit And I think when we think of success, we always think of what we achieve, the job title, the salary, the status, right? Mm. But actually, success is everything you leave behind. Mm. And I think when it comes to careers, the research really supports that. So what we know is nine out of 10 people would trade a significant portion of their earnings, their lifetime earnings, in fact, 23%, the same they spend on housing for greater meaning and fulfillment at work. And when I was researching, well, how can we give ourselves greater meaning at work? Because I like this idea of agency that actually meaning something I can give to myself. Everything points to one thing and people, I want them to hear this. It is your ability to pay it forward, but to pay it forward in a meaningful way. So to pay it forward when it comes back to how we work. So to pay it forward in terms of who you're building informal networks with, what informal information are you giving people access to? How are you supporting your co-workers' development through giving them feedback, through observing how they're working, through trying to support them in terms of their awareness and understanding of how to navigate workplaces? What are you doing to help their advancement? Who are you advocating for? So all of that, the more you pay it forward, the greater meaning you are going to derive from your workplace. This is the incredible thing about the science behind this. So it's thinking about Who can I introduce Cindy to? Who can I support at work with giving them access to information they might need in order to understand what's going on? The more you can pay it forward in that way, you're going to feel more connection. Now, the interesting thing about this is studies find that's just one way to pay it forward. What actually happens in workplaces is when, let's say... I pay it forward to you and give you access to some important information. I'm actually going to derive greater meaning from that. That's the incredible thing about it, right? So I'm going to come away from doing that and feel more connected, more engaged, more satisfied in my work. You are going to feel like, wow, Michelle's paid it forward. That's amazing. Now you get much more likely to pay it forward back to me, right? Mm -hmm. But the incredible thing about this is anybody observing that happening
1: is also going to feel the need to pay it forward to me. So it's a triple whammy. So it sounds like the opportunity to step outside of ourselves, to not make it only about me and to think about the role that you can play in your life and someone else's life as well. So, this, this sense of belongingness, you're giving more insight to what belonging could look like, not just this outcome that, oh, we want, we want belonging, but what is required for someone to feel a sense of belonging? What is required for someone to feel like the, the contributions I'm making at work make me feel valued, make me feel seen, make me feel connected to other people? That's a metric that we are researching and we, we are actually measuring. We want to know how can we increase this. I'd like to know, can... Having an increased sense of belonging, a greater focus on inclusion, help with social anxiety. Because I think we have to have workplaces that understand accessibility, that everyone needs different things at work. So
0: I think the first thing I would say, it's a real bugbear of mine, is there's a tendency, and I'm part of this generation, so I feel like I can speak on behalf of this generation, to say... Well, it it was like that for me. So, I had to do it. So, you have to do it, right? And in New Zealand, you'd say harden up, right? What you mean is like just toughen up, just get with the program. This is how it is. Just deal with it. And there's this almost insensitivity to differences and different lived experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think recognizing that 18 to 24-year-olds have a very different lived experience, right? They don't just live in our world. They also live in a digital world. And they bring that with them to their workplaces. And I think, But starting to make an accommodation for that different lived experience is absolutely critical. So I'll give you a quick example. In a world where we know that 18 to 24-year-olds, and it even goes up closer to 30, struggle with managing ambiguity. What's the first thing you can do as a manager? Be really clear. Be really clear, I don't need the report at some point this week, I need the report at 2pm on Tuesday because that's when I'm taking it to the leadership team. You have to get it to me then. Right, so be as clear as possible and also provide the coaching provide the feedback, provide the reassurance around social interaction. We really need you in that team meeting because it's an opportunity for you to connect. I really need a contribution from you. It'd be great to hear from you. Provide that feedback and that support. That's a way of accommodating. And I think when we think of bridging our differences with others, we think it's as simple as saying in a meeting, you know, Cindy, you haven't spoken. What do you think? It's not. It's about being. You know really caring and somewhere when I say it's become uncool to care about work I mean it's become uncool to care about each other and it's happened within the inclusion space with this idea of it's about being authentic going to work and being yourself no it's not about going to work and just being yourself and to hell with everyone else it's about going to work and being the best version of yourself it's about going to work and managing the impact your behavior has and that starts with understanding yourself but also understanding others
1: Very few people are actually self-aware. According to Michelle, the majority of people think they are self-aware, while most people are still working on it. She talks about a study where participants were asked to draw an E on their forehead. It's a quick way to start to think about self-awareness. Go ahead. Do it now. Did you draw the letter so that someone else could read it? or so that you could read it. People who draw the E so others can read it tend to be more self-aware.
0: So, self-awareness is that gap. It's understanding the gap between how you behave, how others behave, and what it, is, what it is that you need to do to bridge that gap. That's why so few people are self-aware. So, if you're somebody who really wants to actively bridge your differences with others, what I'd recommend you do is take 15 minutes a day, 15 minutes, that's it. You can do it in the shower, you can do it in walking your dog, I don't care. But I want you to think about what worked, what didn't, what could I do differently? when it comes to your interactions with others so what worked what didn't what could I do differently whatever you do don't go down the why don't go down why did that person not talk to me why is it my boss doesn't like me why questions derail self-awareness right what and it, questions it, it
1: build takes it. you it takes you so deep into self and it, it can and you're take viewing
0: you a, it from a biased lens yes. so you're not being objective so what questions and it's also a gift we give each other through feedback. Mm -hmm. They always say with feedback, don't make it weird, right? I share a model in the book for how to give and receive feedback. It is such a good model. And it is really about in the moment, making someone aware of the impact their behavior has, suggesting what they could do differently, and then just moving on. And if you're a person who's trying to build your self-awareness, when you finish that presentation, when you finish the meeting, when you finish the podcast recording, hey, what worked, what didn't, what could I do differently, Mm -hmm. right? Just the simple asking someone that in the moment, It builds your self awareness because that data, that information you can use to manage the impact your behavior has. That's how we demonstrate care for one another. And that's how
1: we also develop. It's how we grow. It's how the whole thing works. I have taken so many notes and I'm thinking about the folks in my classroom now. Even though I teach a graduate school course on inclusive leadership, the people, the majority of people taking that course are millennials. Working in their first or second, you know, jobs, organizational job. And I know when I change the classroom to where it's more circular conversation, less me lecturing up at the board, I connect with them so much better. Mm -hmm. And then when I break out into smaller groups where they're working as project teams And I'm able to come in and just kind of be, you know, the advisor coach and listen to their ideas. It's so much better. But when I'm in the class, it's almost like performing and no one's laughing and no one's saying anything. And I'm just I was not used to that. I I came up in classrooms where it was always debate. It was always someone jumping in and and saying things. So I've had to learn that, that it, it's very different. And I give a lot of breaks. Mm. I give a lot of breaks because it's a lot to sit there and listen to someone and to watch. Okay, so what is she saying? Well, does she really mean that? I, I think she's, you know, where am I putting emphasis, basically, in, in terms of the information that I'm putting out? That is exhausting. I'm exhausted. It's a break from their social it's anxiety being together. It's a break. And then we uh, sometimes we break and we all walk together. We just walk on, you know, we go outside. And I'm like, hey, let's just sit on the grass. Mm-hmm. Let's just sit under the tree. And I'm like, oh, that was so great. I'm like, we didn't do anything. They're like, yeah, <laughs> we took a break. So this, this it, it's helping me understand leadership in a different way. And I think all of the tips that you just gave us, just such amazing insights that we need it's a new leadership model. It's a new leadership model. It's not the way that it has been, this very directive style, autocratic style of of leadership. Just do as I say, follow, or this, you know. So in the books, and yeah, talk about this, yeah, I talk so, about. Tell us more about that. Their
0: 1950s was power over others. Yes. The model today is power, power with. Width.
1: Yeah. I like to call it
0: power together. And I think my caution to anyone listening to this is there will be the majority of leaders who are in leadership positions got there through power over and they are struggling because they don't realize the world of work has changed. They're waking up to it and the old model that got them to where they are today is actually the thing that will be their undoing and hold them back because the world of work has changed and the next generation is absolutely demanding power with so to come back to your classrooms right standing there lecturing that's not what they want they want the collaboration they want the interaction they want the engagement exactly what you're doing exactly how you've adapted your lecturing style small example right but that is the new model and I think the problem is when leaders say, well, this worked in the past. My message is, yes, your marriage to the 1950s power over model of leadership may have worked up until this point. It will not. And so when people dismiss DI, when people sort of see this as somehow relevant to their core job, I just literally want to get the popcorns back and watch because I'm like, the world has changed.
1: Well, we know we want everyone to go get the book. Is there a nugget that you can pull out To give to leaders on one thing that they can start to do, to shift from the power over to the power with, whether it's at their next team meeting. So I think the hardest thing, if you're a leader listening to this, is to
0: recognize that in organizations, the least self-aware person is a leader. So data tells us this. So in academia, we call it the CEO disease. And it's the fact that the higher up an organization you go, the less access you have to quality feedback and a diverse range of feedback. So it's invariable that if you're a senior leader, you're going to go and ask people you sort of trust who like you, probably similar to you, for feedback. And you probably disregard feedback from people you don't really like, are probably a bit different from you. You're also less likely to get honest feedback because you're a leader. So as a result, your self-awareness is not there, right? And I think if most leaders approach situations recognising that whatever they think, probably not totally right, and they might want to validate that. So my question for leaders, my first question is always, what evidence do you have that what you think you're doing is the right thing? So I always open my training sessions by asking leaders, do you think you're an inclusive leader? And invariably all of them will raise their hand going, yes, I am. I'm like, great, what evidence do you have that you're an inclusive leader. So we need leaders to lead in a new way. To do that, they've got to identify, hey, what am I doing that's actually perpetuating other people's experiences of inequality? I might think I'm great, but let me hear from what other people think, right? And I think those two practices I shared earlier, that's a great place to start. You know, I always say, if you want to build an inclusive team, go and ask your team members. You can ask them individually or as a group, five questions. The first is, hey, what does inequality look like in our team environment? So, what what does it look like day to day? Let's define the problem, right? Mm -hmm. What would a culture that truly values difference in our team look like? Let's define success, right? And then what are two to three things we can do as a team to create that type of environment? And then the killer questions that are really hard to ask. What am I not doing as a leader to create that type of environment? And what do I need to start doing as a leader to create that type of environment? Mm-hmm. If every single manager went out and asked their teammates that question, you would close that self-awareness gap overnight, particularly when it comes to inclusion. But the problem is leaders don't own this. Like, it's a leadership problem, and it 100% is. It is.
1: And, and as, as leaders... You have greater responsibility. I, I just talked with Amy Edmondson, Professor Amy Edmondson, about this, and she talked about the importance, uh, the, the realization that you as a leader have the responsibility and you have to own it. I think the other thing is seeing leadership as an opportunity to positively impact someone's life. Leadership should be a calling. It shouldn't just be something that you were promoted into. Want it, want to do well, want to, you know, being in a a position where you want to be the best leader you possibly can. You want to create the best environment. And I think giving people an opportunity to opt out. I think the way that we're going to get to the leaders that we need for, as you say, the future is now, is that we have to allow leaders who do not want to learn this new model that is necessary to opt out and to create the space for those that want it. Mm. Because if we don't, we're just passing the time and we're spending energy on people that actually don't want. It's like, allow them to opt out well, by the way, they don't have the best interest of the organization in mind because
0: they don't have the best interest of their teammates in mind. So they're the people who do need to exit.
1: Right. And so while that happens, you create space for the people that want to lead, want to have this type of distributed leadership, because that is what you're talking about, is this Mm -hmm. collective distributive leadership model that, no, we weren't used to because we have never seen it. And so also leaders that do have a high degree of ambiguity because they're going to have to co-create something that we have not seen before, but that is necessary for what we need. This is where Michelle and I tried to wrap up our conversation. We started talking to the production team and they asked us why the world of work needed to change If Michelle and I turned out okay, so we turned the mics back on. I don't know if I turned out okay. When I think about this, my wanting to be different is thinking about the sadness, the drain, the loneliness that I have felt in my career and not wanting. Me to be the reason that somebody didn't want to stay in corporate, didn't want to lead. I'm not, sa- I'm not trying to be perfect. I'm trying to be real. How can I learn? How can I look at the models that didn't work for me? How can I learn something new, something that works? How can I keep the spark? Do you know what it is for me, Cindy? There's got to be more to life. There's mm. got to be
0: more to life. Then going to a job that you hate every day, clocking in, Mm -hmm. clocking out, feeling like it's all pointless, feeling like you don't belong, feeling like you can't be yourself, having to work every day to hide who you are, to fit some version of what good looks like when it comes, there's got to be more. And I think we're in actually a very exciting time. It's the first time you'll hear me say that because over the years I've just talked about how inequality works. And in all honesty, I've lost my faith in workplaces because along the way you see how difficult it is, how we're going to convince people that the need to change. And now I'm realising, oh, you're either going to change and you're going to make this work for you or you're going to be left behind. Exactly. Because that's how, that's how the world of work has changed. So it's a very exciting time. And for me, like, the future really is inclusive, That's just a fact. We can fight it. You can legislate against it. But that's true because workplaces are diversifying and customers are diversifying. Globalization is happening. So these are global trends that are happening. And you are going to, fact, work for and with people who do not look like you, do not share your background. Your ability to bridge your differences with others is a critical skill set for the new world
1: of work. You know, we we talk a lot about leaders, we talk about a lot a lot about managers. We have to talk about the people who we work with mm-hmm. and their impact on our well-being, their impact on our ability to connect, our ability to collaborate. I would say I love how you've written the book because it's for everyone. It's for not everyone. just, "Hey leader, this book is for you," or "Hey manager, come learn how mm-hmm. to manage better." I remember coming along in my career, the people I worked with had a huge impact on whether I wanted to stay on that team or not. It wasn't just the manager. The good news is I sometimes stay because of the people that I worked with if I didn't have a great manager. And then I sometimes didn't stay because of the people that I worked with. And so you're giving us a guidebook, Um I don't even want to call them rules, I would just say, because I don't want to come. This is just how work works. And we need to be vigilant
0: Mm -hmm.
1: about the opportunity. I'm actually excited about it. I think if we can figure out ways to engage, especially with this, with social anxiety, with the high degree of burnout, with the quiet quitting, if we can figure out how to re-engage people back into the things that really could matter and show them how they can be engaged, we can have a generation solve a lot of problems. And if we don't do it, I think it's not going to be the greatest thing. if If we leave all of this talent, all of this potential on the table because we couldn't figure it out, because we couldn't change, because we couldn't shift to what is necessary, I don't want to rest, I don't want to leave with that on my conscience, so. Well, companies can't afford it, right? We can't, so well, we won't, can't, be won't be, it's, it's to, a, won't it's be a around, it's a relevancy, yeah, yeah.
0: exactly. I think the reality is most of us just want to know, hey, what do I need to do at work in order to make a contribution, find meaning, be successful? And this is it. And I think this idea of win-lose has gone. It's, it's win-win.
1: Thank you all for joining me on this episode of Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter. You can learn more about Michelle King and all of our guests at metlife.com. At MetLife, we are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we believe making a difference in the lives of our customers, community, and the world around us is altogether possible. Learn more and join us at MetLife.com. The link is in our show notes. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast Inclusion Begins With Me Conversations That Matter on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts I hope you also take the time to rate and leave our show a review Before we go, we'd like to thank our podcast partner, Human Group Media, who helped us produce this show That's it for today's episode I hope you join me in the next one